There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of Titans of Food Service. I'm your host, Nick Portillo. And today I welcome Mario Sakura, CEO of Awareness Action International, to the show. With over 25 years of experience in performance improvement and leadership development, Mario is a true expert in understanding what drives human behavior and how to leverage that understanding for individual and team success. At Awareness to Action International, Mario and his team specialize in customized programs designed to help their clients reach their full potential. From executive coaching to team building workshops, their approach is all about providing actionable insights into human nature, empowering clients to excel in their roles. And that's pretty cool. Mario's innovative approach to integrating the Enneagram model, which for those who are not familiar, we're going to talk a little bit about that here in the podcast, with leadership development has garnered him international recognition. Through programs like the Personalities at Work program and Clear Thinking for Leaders, Mario equips leaders with the tools they need to make informed decisions and foster effective collaboration. With a diverse client portfolio spanning multiple industries, Mario's impact reaches far and very wide. As a trusted advisor and leader in the Enneagram community, he's known for his ability to help individuals and teams unlock their full potential. Join us as we dive into a conversation with Mario about human behavior, leadership, and the keys to success in the food service industry. Now let's go ahead and welcome Mario. All right, Mario, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come on here and meet with me. It's great to be with you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So as we talked a little bit off camera, I usually like to start off with what I call the fiery five food service questions. They're fun, uh, easy questions, and there's no wrong, no right or wrong answer. So the first one is, if you could have dinner with any one person, either historical or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, boy. Um, Well, of course, my wife, but uh, other than my wife... um, (laughs) You know, I've been reading a lot of the philosopher Karl Popper lately and I've been fascinated with his work. So I would probably say today Karl Popper would be my ideal uh, dinner guest uh, just because he had an amazingly brilliant mind in the field of epistemology, which is part of philosophy and about the nature of knowledge. So I would love to pick his brain about that. Fantastic. I I can't believe I've never heard of Karl Popper before. Uh, Great philosopher of science. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in philosophy or science to check out Popper. Okay. Next question is, if someone had one night in Philadelphia, where must they eat? Oh boy, that's that. See, now you've got me excited. So, um, so Philadelphia is famous for cheesesteaks, of, of course, course, right? So you've got to do the obligatory cheesesteak. You've got to do it in South Philadelphia. Now, in, in Philadelphia, people argue about what are the best cheesesteaks, and there are a the couple famous places that the locals say, oh, they're just tourist places, blah, blah, blah. But for me, you've got to go to Gino's down at 9th and Passyunk, right? People consider it a tourist place that they're in the city, but it is the best experience, and I think the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. From there, um, let's see, Dirty Frank's Bar at 13th and Pine Street 
It's a little dive place that's been there forever. Uh, nothing has changed in the f almost 40 years I've been going to Dirty Franks, I hate to say. Um, and uh, it's uh, I took a friend there recently, and she said it was like the bar from Star Wars. So uh, for me, that's the ideal Philadelphia evening. A year ago, I did a course at Wharton, and oh, uh -huh. I flew in. The, the It started on a Tuesday, and I flew in on Monday, and I think it landed around 5. I immediately mm -hmm. got off the flight. I checked into my hotel. I went to the Rocky statue. I went uh -huh. over to Gino's. Um, gotcha. And then I took a, an Uber over to a 76ers game. I got there after half. Oh, nice. And I was like, man, nice. I've lived Philadelphia in like three hours <laughs> <laughs> or parts of it. At least I know it's a, big that's, city. that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, stop in Philadelphia. For sure. If you could only have one type of cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, I would probably go with Peruvian food. Um, the Peruvian food is, um, um, it has a lot of Japanese influences and, uh, there are a lot of very interesting vegetables and potatoes in Peru. So, uh, assuming I was in or near Peru, uh, lots of great seafood, uh, great beef dishes, uh, but probably if I had to stick with one, I'd probably say that's the one I'd go with. Okay. Are there any foods or dishes you've wanted to try but haven't yet? Things I've wanted to try but haven't yet. I would like to know more about Indian food. Okay, so um, I, I have had Indian food and I have enjoyed what I have, but I don't know Indian food. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel a lot of places and eat a lot of different cuisines, but Indian food's still a mystery to me, so I would like to know more about Indian food. On the topic of traveling, do you have a favorite food-related memory from traveling? Wow, lots of good ones there. Favorite? F so off uh, prior to our starting, we were talking about our time in Italy. Um, yep. And I mentioned riding in the um, uh, mopeds. My wife and I, on our honeymoon, rode mopeds from uh, Florence down to Siena along the Chianti Giana, which is the road that goes through the Chianti region. And we stopped along the way at a little restaurant in a town called Castellina, uh, overlooking a valley off to the side in Tuscany, and had an amazing pasta rigatoni dish and a nice bottle of local wine. And that was probably one of my favorite meal memories. The way you describe that, it's like... I want to go. <laughs> As we were yeah. talking off camera before we started, I went a few months ago with my wife to Italy uh -huh. and just had the itch to go back. I, it, it, right. you know, I just love that country. It's such a beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's 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 not only beautiful, but the language and the food yes. and the the atmosphere and just the experience is is world class. It's hard to beat. It is. Well, thanks for humoring me on the Fiery Five food service. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Maybe start off with a little bit of background on yourself. Who are you? What is your business? Uh, so I am an executive coach and consultant, and uh, I started my career professionally as a writer and editor when I was young, and uh, moved into corporate communications, and then in. Uh, 1997, I took a role with a small consulting company doing executive coaching and team building for them. was with them for about a year and then uh, went off on my own. 
And um, I had learned about the Enneagram model of personality styles mm -hmm. in 1994. And I started applying that in my work um, in 97 when I started doing this kind of work. At the time, the Enneagram was relatively unknown. It seems like a lot of people know about it now, but um, nobody really knew about it then. And there were no books that um, really uh, were suitable for giving to my corporate clients. So I decided I had to write one. And so a co-author and I wrote a book called Awareness to Action, uh, The Enneagram, Emotional Intelligence and Change. And through that, I became sort of known in the Enneagram world and got asked to start attending conferences and all that sort of thing. And so from there, I ended up being kind of a, a you know, kind of a thought leader in the Enneagram world. I, not a term I really like, but I can't think of a better one at this point, you know. And so I have made my living for the last 25 years doing executive coaching, team building, and uh, in particular work with the Enneagram in organizations. Maybe a little background on what is the Enneagram. So the Enneagram is a model of personality styles, okay? Uh, the word Enneagram uh, is Greek. Ennea means nine. Gram means drawing. So the Enneagram is, is really this kind of weird diagram with nine points and nine lines on it, or, you know, around a circle. And it represents different personality styles. And uh, it's actually a, a model, it's actually two dimensions of personality, right? There are two elements of the Enneagram. Most people focus on the nine Enneagram types or strategies, uh, but there is also this area called uh, instinctual biases, and there are three of those. So you have these two dimensions of personality, and uh, when you put them together, you get sort of 27 profiles of different kinds of people. And so I use that in my work with my clients to help them understand themselves better and to understand the people that they work with. Why would someone use an Enneagram over maybe a Myers-Briggs or a DISC or yeah. other types of uh, assessments out there? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, there are a lot of great assessments out there. You know, the Myers-Briggs is you know, kind of a classic and it's, mm -hmm. it's a very good tool, DISC the same way. Um, what I find with the Enneagram is two things. Number one, it goes really, really deep, right? You can, it, it, there are very complicated approaches to the Enneagram and there are simple approaches to the Enneagram because of the clients that I work with, because of the way I am naturally, I like things simple. So I tend to take a more simple approach to the Enneagram, but it goes very deep and it is sticky, right? And that's the thing I have found that makes the Enneagram really, really useful. When I work with executives, particularly early um, in my career, I would always ask them, you know, have you taken Myers-Briggs? Have you taken DISC? That sort of thing. And they would always say yes. And I'd say, okay, well, what's your Myers-Briggs type? And they would say, I think I'm an E something or other. And, you know, and they never quite remembered it. You know, once in a while, you would get somebody who'd remember their four letters, but they can almost never tell you what those letters meant or what's let alone what somebody else's letters meant. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, so I found that, you know, while the Myers-Briggs is great, you really have to be dedicated to uh, working with it to understand. Now, DISC is a lot easier, mm -hmm. but I find it, you know, even though it's really valuable, I don't think it goes as deep as the Enneagram does. Okay. So one of the things about the Enneagram is that once people know their Enneagram type, in my experience, they remember it, right? And they remember the implications of it. And they can remember other people's personality types as well. So it's a, it's a stickier and more useful model, while in my opinion, also goes deeper than the others do. 
That makes sense. When when working with your clients, how how does the no, let's say a team knowing their Enneagram score, how does that help them within their own business? So when people work together, uh, conflict and lack of communication or communication breakdown tends to happen for two main reasons. Okay, There's lots of reasons, but there are two main ones. Number one is a difference in priorities. Number two is a difference in style. Okay. So you think this is important. I think that's important. And we tend to clash or we agree on what's important, but we go about it in different ways. And so we clash on that. And what the Enneagram helps us do is understand, number one, why people prioritize things the way they do. And that's what those three instinctual biases I mentioned are all about, right? They help us understand our bias towards one of three instinctual aspects of life preserving, navigating, and transmitting. The nine strategies are the style piece of it, right? How we go about satisfying our values, okay? So by understanding that this is what my biases are and this is what your biases are, we can depersonalize it. I realize why you do the things you do, okay? And I realize that it's not just because you're being a jerk or it's not just because you're being difficult or anything like that. It's just that you see the world in a different way than I do. And I can start to understand the way you see the world so we can find a way to collaborate more effectively. Are there types that work better together or are there types that don't work well together at all? It's interesting. So what I find is that, you know, people of similar personality styles tend to get along better most of the time right? We see the world the same way, okay? So uh, there's that piece of it. But also, there are times when that can turn into a competitive sort of situation, right? We see the world the same way. We're both after the same thing. I see you as, you know, competition or an impediment in some way. So that can cause conflict. Other times, people who are opposite from us can drive us crazy because we can't really relate to where they're coming from or, mm. you know, we think different things are important. But if circumstances are right, us seeing things in opposite ways tends to help us come together to, you know, solve a problem from different directions, right? You have something that I don't, I have something that you don't, and we can work together. So it's not so much about the Enneagram types, but other circumstances, but it helps if we can filter them through an understanding of the Enneagram types, okay? So what I usually tell people is that the Enneagram is not necessarily predictive, right? I can't tell, I think you mentioned to me that you scored as the uh, type three, which we call striving to feel outstanding, okay? Now, I cannot predict whether you will be successful at anything or whether or not you or I will get along just based on your Enneagram type. Okay. But what I can do is say, hmm, something's not working here. All right. Let's see if this has something to do with our personality styles. The fact that I'm an eight who's striving to feel powerful and you're a three who's striving to feel outstanding. Oh, okay. Here's where the, here's where the clash is. Now we can work it out. Got it. It's driving, uh, drilling a little bit deeper into the type three. I'm just curious what, yeah. what are type threes like? Yeah, sure. So each of the nine Enneagram types, it's represented by a number, right? So if you look at the Enneagram diagram, there's, you know, one through nine around the circle. And we call somebody a type three because 
at that point on the diagram, there's what's called an adaptive strategy represented. And that adaptive strategy is striving to feel outstanding. Okay. So you get somebody who gets up in the morning and they don't really think about it, but they're driven to succeed. They're driven to achieve things. They're driven to make things happen. And that's just the way they're oriented to the world. Yeah. So, uh, so we call it by the number just for convenience. Okay. So you're a three, I'm an eight, et cetera. But it's this idea of somebody who's striving to feel outstanding. So this creates somebody who, you know, wants to feel, and when I say feel, I mean it, right? It's, it's this feeling inside that drives the way I think about the world, Mm. that drives how I behave in the world. Okay. So a three is going to think about how do I be successful? Okay. How do I achieve things? How do I accomplish things? And then they're going to act in ways that'll increase the probability of that. So threes are people, you know, I always say they're the people that you want around when you're building a business, right? Or when you're trying to achieve things because they just are wired to accomplish. Now there's some downside to that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Go, I'm go sure. ahead. Question. No, yeah. I was going to say, what are the downsides? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Now, again, all the, you know, every strength has, you know, overdone has some downside to it. And we all have vulnerabilities. So the challenge that threes can run into, and I've coached a lot of these people over the years, because again, I've been doing this for over 25 years and these people tend to be fairly successful. So you run into a lot of them in big organizations. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges they can have is that, Number one, they can be so focused on the goals that they can forget about people sometimes. Okay? They can forget about other people's needs and other people's concerns and so forth. Now, this does not mean that they're doing it on, on purpose because they're bad people or anything like that. It's just that right. they're so focused on the goal that they can forget about the people around them. The other thing is they can, because they tend to drive themselves really hard, they tend to be accomplished. They tend to work harder than other people. They tend to work faster than other people. And as leaders, this can be a challenge because it's easier for them to do things themselves, right? Instead of me waiting for somebody else to do it or delegate it to somebody else, you know what? I'll just do it myself. And so this means that, you know, they get to a certain point where they're doing too much by themselves and they've only got 24 hours in a day right? They've only got so much capacity and it can stall their careers, right? So what I'm always, when I'm working with threes, I always tell them, you want to go from being an outstanding doer to an outstanding leader, right? Somebody who achieves through other people. And that can be a hard transition for threes because they, you know, it's like, it's like going from a player to a coach. Okay. Some athletes can do it, a lot of them just want to grab the ball and get back on the court, mm-hmm. right? Which instead of be the coach. And so this is a challenge that threes can have. You just described me to a T. That's exactly how I live my life. <laughs> and the, the pros and the cons, uh, it, both. Right. Where I, I do, I literally had conversations today of, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'll just do it. I, I can handle it. It's not a big deal. And, I, and I'm right. always doing that with so many different things. And it's funny, I work right. with my dad, him and I, we own our business together. Mm. And we've built a great business over the last nine years. And it's really grown nicely. We've got about 25 people on our team. But I still, he, he's always like, what can I take off your plate? I'm like, don't worry about it. I got it. <laughs> and then, But there's right. so many days, weeks, months, years where I'm like, I worked every single second of every day and I'm just tired. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm moving yeah. so fast cause I want to achieve. 
uh, I want to be outstanding. That's wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's important for people with your profile to learn to think the long game, right? Yeah. And instead of being outstanding today, how am I going to be outstanding over the course of my career? And that means pacing myself to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, now look, you're never going to, you're always going to work harder and faster than most people. Okay. That's just going to be part of your nature, but you really need to build in some self-maintenance and some self-care, right? I mean, even, you know, even the Formula One cars take a pit stop on occasion, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it might be a short one, but they're doing it on a regular basis. So uh, that, that's an important thing for you because that is, you know, again, I've seen a lot of people with that profile over the years and they can burn out. They can run into some health-related issues, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because of pushing themselves too hard. Very well said. Are there certain types that are more common or less common than others? There's no real way of knowing, you know, how many people of what types there are or what profiles. But anecdotally speaking, it seems to me that there's a relatively even number of people out there of each personality style. But you do tend to see them, people clustering in particular industries, for example, in particular roles and that sort of thing, right? So depending on where you are, there are some environments that you'll go into and you'll see a lot of threes, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, for example, I work with a number of financial institutions yeah, and there are a whole lot of threes in those, you know, the Wall Street stereotype, that's mm-hmm. kind of a three-ish stereotype. So you'll see a lot of people who are threes there. In the creative industries, you'll see a lot of type fours who we call striving to be unique, striving to feel unique in grade school teachers. I mean, I have four boys and, you know, when they were in grade school, all their teachers, it seemed, were the Enneagram type two, which is somebody who's striving to feel connected, right? The helpers mm-hmm. and people who want to support others. So in different populations, you'll see higher numbers of different types, but I think they're pretty much evenly distributed. Can anybody take this test? Yeah, so there there are a number of Enneagram tests out there, and uh, we have one. Uh, let's see, the ataenneagramtest.com, a free test. And we have another one for the instinctual biases at instinctualbiastest.com. Again, both of those are free, and if you fill them out, you get a report. I always tell people, though, to um, be careful about relying too much on a test result. Okay. Uh, with any Enneagram test out there, they run about 70, 75% accurate. Okay. There are some people who claim more, but that's really not my experience. So what you want to do is take the test and say, okay, this is a starting point for me to look. And then I want to read the descriptions of the different types and see which one really fits me. Okay. So don't over rely on the test. Use it as a starting point for exploration. For leadership teams... Let's say they all, within a leadership team, all, all the members of the leadership team go out, take the Enneagram test. Where do they go from there in terms of implementing it into their business? Because I think, because I, here's where my question is coming from. I'm thinking sure. about my own leadership team. Have everybody take this yeah. test and then mm-hmm. determine, you know, essentially maybe look at, do we have the right people in the right roles? Are there some people that should be doing what they're doing or, or maybe not what they're doing, I, I guess, how could I better implement and use a tool like this within my business? So you always want to be careful about assuming that uh, uh, somebody's Enneagram profile 
determines what role they'll be successful in and what role they won't, right? Um, Because, um, you know, I've had people tell me over the years, oh boy, you know, all type ones we call striving to feel perfect. They should be your finance people, you know, and and things like that. All type fives who are striving to feel detached, they should be your engineers and so forth. In reality, it doesn't work that way. Okay. In my experience, I've seen people of all profiles be successful and unsuccessful in all sorts of roles. But what understanding the Enneagram does help you do is recognize when somebody is struggling, why they might be struggling. Okay. So for example, with the Enneagram type three, like you, I'm going to say, you know, okay, probably pretty strong on the sales and marketing part of things, right? Getting out there really good at connecting with people, building rapport, polished, you know, looks good, knows how to play the part, knows the right things to say, right? Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to, you know, for, so for me, okay, it's a natural sort of fit, but not every type three is successful at that. Okay. And so the way I would look at things is, okay, well, how well is Nick doing in the role? And when he starts to struggle or if he starts to struggle, what is it about his personality type that is undermining him and how do we fix that? Okay. So if I'm working with a team and I get everybody's Enneagram profiles, does a couple of things, right? Sitting around having everybody in a team understand each other from this lens humanizes people, right? It helps me understand, oh, now I get why you do that. You know, that never made sense to me before, but now I get why you act that way or think that way or whatever it is. So there's, there's a humanizing effect, which allows us to be more compassionate toward people right? We don't assume that they're doing something just to be difficult. We realize they're just as stuck in their personality patterns as we are in ours. And so we become a little bit more compassionate. Now, it can also help us understand that sometimes, you know, somebody is in the wrong role, okay? Uh, There are these particular expectations, you know, this role requires somebody who's really extroverted, who's really outward facing, who's really comfortable going out and engaging with people. Mm -hmm. Now, if I have somebody who's the type five, who's striving to feel detached, and in addition to that, they're what we call the preserving instinctual bias. This is somebody who's really introverted, right? And it just might not be a natural fit for them. And they might be a better fit somewhere else. So it. it can help us look at probabilities, but we want to be careful about any kind of universals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What does your engagements look like when you work with a company? You know, for those listening along, maybe they say, I want to work with Mario. I want to learn more. What are the, what are the types of deliverables that you give to your clients? Yeah. Yeah. So we, so we do a number of things. So I do executive coaching, one-on-one okay. executive coaching. Um, and uh, that's always been a big part of my work. And that's something I really enjoy. I really enjoy working with people, particularly helping people scale, right? That's the way I always think about it. People take on larger responsibility or prepare for larger responsibility. Uh, so that's a big part of it. I do team building engagements, right? Often using the Enneagram as a starting point. So get people together, talk about their Enneagram types, and then design sort of some sort of team building engagement for them based on their team profile. We also, you know, I have some clients who just, 
actually have me come and sit around in their meetings and observe them and then give them feedback and that sort of thing. So I have some clients uh, who do that sort of thing. We have a program called Personalities at Work, which is just an introduction to the Enneagram, right, Mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of our clients like. And finally, we do a uh, certification program for other consultants and uh, uh, coaches and trainers who would like to use our approach to the Enneagram in their work with their clients. For those listening along, what's the best way for them to reach out and connect with you or someone from your team? Yeah. So the best way for our corporate services is through our website at awarenesstoaction.com. And uh, for the uh, anybody who's interested in being trained to use the Enneagram in their work, you can go to enneagramondemand.com. Okay. Mario, thank you so much for coming on the Titans of Food Service podcast and and sharing your wisdom. I I learned a lot and I also learned a lot about myself here. I feel like it was actually perfect timing to hear to hear this. So thank you so much. Great. Great. It's been a lot of fun, Nick. Thank you. You're welcome.